The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Once again, I tell you that uh, I'd ask you to turn to the book of Ephesians, in the middle of the New Testament, Paul's letter to Ephesus. I told you last week that I want to spend about a a handful of weeks crawling rather slowly through this first chapter of Ephesians because it is such a wonderful laying out of the entire span of God's intention and purpose in giving human salvation and mentions aspects of that work that aren't always put together in the same way. We have this amazing sentence which in the Greek goes through verse 12 that's one sentence. Your English teacher would tell you never write a sentence that long, all run together. But that's what Paul did, lifted up by the glory of the subjects he was writing about. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 again. I put special emphasis on verses, uh, verse 3 in particular last week. Uh, today I want to emphasize verses 4 and 5, and I'm going to go that slow down through at least the first half of this chapter over the next few weeks as we look at this. So listen once more to Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God... To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Father, once again, these are high and wonderful things all tied together. Help us in our human minds to receive what you have revealed here for our blessing. We bless you, our great God of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my backyard has a small tree in it, but it's not an apple tree. But I'm going to ask you to believe that I do have an apple tree in my backyard, just suppose, and just suppose that it bears our family's favorite kind of apples. My wife buys Granny Smith apples to make pies. Uh, I don't, they don't have Granny Rogers apples, so she has to be satisfied with Granny Smith. Well, let's say we have a Granny Smith apple tree in our backyard, and uh, the time for ripe apples has come and, in fact, gone, and the apples, many of them, were falling off the tree onto the ground before I realized, and 
and I hastened out at my wife's instruction with a basket and filled it with a dozen or so Granny Smith apples for her to make pies, multiple pies, that she does an excellent job with that. Well, we eat one of these apple pies for dessert. We give others to our children, maybe a neighbor or two. And suppose there's a neighbor. This is just suppose. There's no such real person. Uh, That there's a neighbor who also can see my backyard. And he says, Michael, I watched you when you went out with your basket and gathered uh, a dozen or so, it appeared, apples for Carol to bake pies. And they were, the pie was wonderful. Thank you for giving us one. But I have something I want to blame you for because I look at your yard out my window and I see 40 or 50 apples laying on the ground that have just fallen. And I'm sure I haven't gone over to look at them, but they must be getting all mushy and eaten by worms and rotten and they're good for nothing. Michael, how could you intentionally choose to destroy so many good apples that way? Well, was my persnickety neighbor right uh, or correct in criticizing me for saying that I had only used a dozen apples from the tree and, and let 40 or 50 others fall and that I destroyed them? Was he criticizing me fairly? Was he actually saying something that many people say, not about apples, but about human souls? as they blame God for choosing some from all eternity to be saved in Christ. And they would say, others God must consign cruelly and with no clear reason to be condemned to hell, to perish. How could God do such a thing? Was that a fair criticism of me, even with apples? Or was I simply allowing nature to take its inevitable course? as those that I did not select fell and rotted and are no good for anyone now. Well, the illustration may come into shape for you as I speak this morning. Last Sunday, I suggested to you that a commentator has compared the many truths here in Ephesians 1 to a mountain range, the view of the Swiss Alps or the Himalayas, a beautiful range of mountains stunning to look at as one doctrine after another is put forth here in the order of God putting these things into effect. And that I suggested what is being conveyed here is the ultimate purpose of God in authoring salvation to people whom Ephesians 2.1, just a number of verses further down, are going to call people who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. We're going to read here how people needed a gift of faith. Ephesians 2 again says that you need faith in Christ to be saved. And by grace you've been saved through faith, it says. And this faith is the gift of God. It isn't something you initially have yourself. God has to give you faith to be saved. The difficult theme that's here, as well as a wonderful theme, is that God is sovereign in whom he chooses to save. And that, for many people, is one of the hardest subjects that can possibly be raised. Last time 
as I spoke on mostly on verse 3, Ephesians 1.3 said to believers, God has blessed you believers, you saints they were called in the beginning there, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then Paul is going to spell out what are those spiritual blessings. Well, the first one he spells out in verse 4 is this, even as, here's the spiritual blessings, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's a subject that I just had a feeling I needed to deal with. I have limited opportunities now before me over the next few months to speak to you, and there are important things that I want to emphasize, maybe that I haven't emphasized as much as I might have. And I want you to be sure you would check your Bible. Have your Bible open while I'm talking today to be sure that it reads the same as what I gave you, that it says, even as God chose you. Please verify that. Make sure it's there. Because there are people who say it's not there. It's not in my Bible, they say. I do the choosing. I choose Christ. I wasn't chosen in some kind of a lottery or something. And people will say, I respect the Bible, I respect what it teaches, but they will hear this subject of God choosing those who would be saved, and they reject it, they push it away, and they will vehemently resist anyone saying that this is a biblical statement. Well, since Ephesians 1.4 calls God choosing of some to be saved as the first in a chain of spiritual blessings, I want to first define the prehistoric blessing of his divine election. And I call it prehistoric because the claim is made here that God settled this matter, quote, before the foundation of the world. Before there were any people, before there was an earth, before the first man and woman had sinned by disobeying the Creator, it is claimed here that God, in his ultimate purposes to bring glory to himself, worked a way of salvation when even evil itself had not yet been visible in any manner. He knew how he would create human beings. He knew what human beings would do in relation to his commandments. And he knew what he would do about our rebellion. There's a parallel text you might have in mind, or maybe you'd, if you write references in your Bible column, some people don't like to write in Bibles, but you could put beside 1-4 if there's room for it. There's 2 Timothy one nine, a parallel, also by Paul. There we read Second Timothy one nine. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of what? His own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now you and I are more accustomed to talking about our salvation if we have dates or calendars in mind, we talk in terms of a calendar date within our lifetime. And I might say to someone, I've many times said from this pulpit that I trace my conscious response to salvation, my first response to the age of eight at a vacation Bible school in 1957. And I can say it was the last week of June. I don't know the exact day, but it was, it was June of 1957. Now, I don't typically say what some people say, I was saved on that particular day. Because salvation is not a one-day event. 
Salvation is God opening your mind to Christ and having a response of your will and then working in you for years to come throughout your Christian life. The thing that he is doing until he brings you to be saved and glorified with him and see him face to face. But I know that at least when I became conscious of a response to God and Christ and the cross and the resurrection, it was the last week of June 1957. So I could just go around and talk about that date. But I think it's important that I not only talk about that date, but that I say what I've found out since then is I was elect before the foundation of the world. God's Word says it. It goes all the way back that far to prehistoric time. And Second Timothy 1.9 says this, that God's choosing of his elect sprang out of a purpose. It says his own purpose and grace. It was based on what God was determining to do, not on what was worthy or, you know, notable about some human being's life. There's certainly nothing notable about my life that would single me out and God say, oh, I have to make sure I include that fellow because he's so outstanding. No such thing is said anywhere. It was all according to God's purpose and grace, things which remain shrouded in mystery for me to understand. So we're told here in Ephesians 1.4 and 2 Timothy 1.9 that in pre-creation ages, God had a purpose in mind and he acted according to that purpose and things are still working out in history and time according to his saving purposes. Before his son became a man on this earth, he had a purpose that would be pursued through his son. Verse 5 here of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 says, God predestined us for the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now already hackles are rising for some of you, I'm sure, or some of the folks who listen to the radio are saying, oh, brother, here we've got this Calvinist going at us today. Uh, and you may be saying, well, wait a minute now. Didn't my will make a decision? After all, I prayed the sinner's prayer and asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I remember doing that. I remember feeling a compulsion to do that, a sense of great need to respond to God. Even as an eight-year-old, I felt that. And I say, yes, indeed. God may have blessed you that way, and you may have responded with a great sense that you were making the decision of your life. But Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says that decision was one in which God works in us both to will it and to perform it. It began as a purpose of God's will and God's choice. Now, we don't like this. The human will doesn't like this. And people come back with all kinds of arguments. Jesus said in John 6, 65, no one is able to come to me unless it is granted to him by his Father. No one has the ability unless the Father grants it. In Acts 13, 48, Luke is recording the He's sort of like the, you know, uh, events recorder for Paul and Barnabas as they were going about on a missionary journey preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And Gentiles were responding 
And Luke records a certain place in, where this was happening, and he writes a key sentence there. He says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. People believed. But who were those people that believed? They were people who were appointed to eternal life. When I teach this, many of you know in the new members class, I, we talk about this and I draw a, my version of an iceberg on the board with its little tip above the ocean waves and its great big bulk down below the wave as God doing his eternal work in salvation. You see the little tip of the iceberg. You, oh, I responded to Jesus. Yes, you did. What was behind that? What was motivating that? What was empowering that? The work of God, deciding even before there was history and time that he would form a people for himself and call out that people. You know, this is a thing that makes ministry exciting, and I don't just mean being a pastor. All the ministry that we do in this church, the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the children's ministries, as we're telling the gospel to one another and helping one another to learn various things about the gospel of salvation. We have these various experiences to see someone coming alive to Christ, being a midwife. You never thought that I was a midwife, would you? But I've been a midwife many, many times to seeing people awaken to Jesus Christ. And there, I could, if I wanted to, I could say, you stand up, you stand up, you stand up, because there are people right here for whom I was such a midwife. I didn't do anything. No power of mine caused anyone to make a decision. The power of God worked in someone's life, and there was a pastor, there was a friend, there was a Sunday school teacher, somebody who just helped along, and wow, a Christian was born. And you're aware when you're in ministry that that's not something you caused in a moment of time. That's something that was an eternal event of God's planning and God's work in that life. Well, I sought to make maybe a bad sketch to just define the prehistoric blessing of divine election. But let me do this now with the rest of my time. I want to state several truths, a, hand, a handful of truths that I would say are in various ways consequences of the doctrine of divine election. See if these address some of the questions and things that are on your mind. A first consequence of it is that everybody finds this doctrine difficult to grasp mentally and intellectually. So if you struggle with it, don't think there's anything unique about you. There absolutely is not. It is a very difficult doctrine. I've read the best books about it, probably dozens of them, over the years for decades. And I struggle with questions that aren't answered. You have to make up your mind when addressing something like this that behind it is a mystery that only eternity is going to reveal to us, if, if even then, mysteries that God has hidden. The Scripture says in one place that, that there are things that God has revealed which are for us, but there are hidden things which are His for Himself. And this is not some kind of a variant uh, idea of Bible translation invented by John Calvin or some particular person. You know, I, I'll make a confession to you folks. You can blame me for this all day if you want to. I've been your pastor for 24 years, and I can guarantee you that those who've been with me for 24 years would say not often from the pulpit has Rogers propounded the word Calvinism. Do you know why? 
I'm a Calvinist, proud of it, absolutely proud of it. But I don't go around saying Calvin this, Calvin that, Calvinism this, because it's really misleading. John Calvin is not responsible for Calvinism. The Bible is. Jesus is. Paul was. Luke was. Peter was. Augustine. Many people. If you want who wrote in the Reformation about what we call Calvinism or God's sovereignty within salvation, Martin Luther wrote four words for every one that Calvin wrote on the subject. It's the great doctrine of the Reformation, but it's really the doctrine of the Bible. And what I'm saying to you is it's a doctrine that confounds the mere human intellect of man. We have to be willing to come to it and say, this is from beginning to end a mystery. And God has pulled curtains around it so that we can't know everything about it, no matter how much we want to. And in Romans 9, for example, a passage, you see the whole ninth chapter of Romans is on this subject, and some of the hardest things about it are there. And at one place there, Paul says, Who are you, O man, to argue with God? Does the clay say to the potter, Why do you make one vessel into this and another vessel into... No. We stand back and take the shoes off our feet because these truths are holy ground and they're mysterious. And we use our intellect, but we know that we can't go to the full depths of it. Second consequence to think about is not only acknowledge that there's mystery in the heart of it, but know that if you object to this doctrine, you really have a prior objection. You have another problem. Many people like to talk about the so-called five points of Calvinism. You may know that they form the, the first letters form the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election. Let's just stop right there. If people argue with God's unconditional election, which is declared in a place like Ephesians 1.4, you know what their problem is? They don't accept the T either. Because if you understood that you are totally tainted by sin, totally unable to come to God in your own strength and your own ability, that every aspect of your being, your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your dreams, everything is at least tainted with sin, affected by sin, and you are lost. In fact, Ephesians said you are dead, dead spiritually in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't pick up the medicine and take it for themselves. It's the T you have the problem with, not the U in the tulip, folks. If you cannot accept the idea of God's election, you think you've just got a little problem and you're a little bit lost, but you'll find your way out of the woods and get home before dark. No, sir. The Scripture says you're lost. You're absolutely lost, and you need God to act for you. A third consequence to think about is this. The topic of election and the teaching of election does not anywhere teach that God plays eeny, meeny, miny, mo with people and says, you're saved, you're saved, I condemn you, I condemn you, you're saved. No. There's nothing like that. God does not, in election, condemn people. Again, if we believe we're totally affected by sin, we're condemned already, aren't we? Didn't Jesus say... After, right after, you know, people love John 3.16, but they don't read the, the next verses. And he who does not believe these things is condemned already. God doesn't have to say, you're condemned. You are condemned unless you're in Christ. 
unless you've come to know him. God didn't force you into perishing without salvation. That's where you were going. That's where the apple was falling, folks. I'm not responsible for the apples that fell by their natural course that happens to all apples that are not picked and baked into grandma's pie. They fall. They rot. They're eaten by worms. God says that's what happens to souls that are lost in sin if God doesn't take them out of that situation and decide to save. Well, of course, the consequent question to that is then, why does God pass some by? How fair is that? Oh, there it is, the the master question, fair. Who says God is fair? God is just. He's absolutely just. You know what? If he decided to save nobody at all, he'd be absolutely just. If he decided to save one person in all of history, he'd be just. Whatever God does is just because he's God, because he's the holy, most high God who doesn't owe you an answer to prove to you that he's somehow fair. If you're going to ask the question, why, why doesn't he save everyone? That's what people want to know. My question is, why does he save anyone? He'd be the just God if he saved no one. Of all the human beings of history who have rebelled against him, every one of them. Well, a fourth consequence, besides knowing that election doesn't mean God idly or arbitrarily, you know, you say you do something arbitrarily, you're saying basically for no reason. You cannot accuse God of being arbitrary. Everything he does has a reason. We just don't know the reasons perhaps right now. But God has his reasons. A fourth consequence we must mention today, and I'll go quick here, is that election is not a stimulus to pride or somehow vaunting that I have a secure and superior place over others. It's a stimulus to holy living. That's right here in our text. What does it say? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. For what? That we should be holy and blameless because in love he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. He, he ordained that we would live holy lives, set-apart lives, lives that respect the morality of the Bible and the character of Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Christ. So you cannot have the caricature that some people like to say, oh, yes, indeed, you election people, you Calvinist people, you think you're so great. Sorry, I don't know any true Calvinists who think they're so great. As a matter of fact, when you believe in the election choice of God before all eternity, you are humbled in the dust. And all the rest of your life you're saying, why, oh God, why me? What was different about me that you would think somehow that you would single me? I can't understand, oh God, there are, there are far better people than I am. Believing in election does not lead us to pride and superiority. It leads us to holiness, to set apart behavior, to worship and glorify this great God, not to pride. When we think that the Lord said in the Old Testament, why did, why did he love Israel? Well, the Lord said, I loved Israel because I loved them. How about that? That's what you have to stick with. I love them because I love them. That's all the answer I'm going to give you the Lord says. How does that lead you to pride? 
It leads you to glorify God, not to be proud. A last consequence of believing this doctrine, I'll say for this morning, moving very quickly over a difficult subject, is that it should prove to be a rock of Gibraltar in our salvation assurance. If you know Christ today and you're conscious that you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you call him Lord of your life, how did you get that? You you weren't born with that. And if you have come to that and stand in that and say, I look to Christ and nothing else, and, it, you know, I, I hope it's not just my vacillating human mind thinking this. Think of it. If you're responsible for salvation, boy, you're in trouble. Because I don't know about you, my mind changes all the time. And a little wind of breeze could blow on me of some doubt or or some difficulty or some suffering that I'm aware of. and I think, Oh, I must not be saved. I must not be a Christian. I stand and say... Listen, I am a believer in Jesus Christ and he cannot deny me what I have declared in him because he'd be denying everything his word says is true that I have taken hold of, that he chose me in Christ before all creation. If I stand on that ground, not on my mind is holding on to it, I'm choosing it, I'm doing it. No, no. I would reject it tomorrow. Satan would snatch it out of my hand and say, that's not true. And I would say, get behind me, Satan, and run. Because it is true, according to the declaration of the Word of God and the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. Knowledge of this doctrine does not eliminate your questions, folks. And I've probably provoked many more questions than I've answered this morning. I can imagine conversations in the cars going home. But uh, knowledge of this doctrine should lead us to glorify and worship our God and be doing that all our days. A great theologian, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Warfield, said this. Let me quote him. He who knows that it is God who has chosen him and that he owes his salvation in all of its processes and every stage along the way to this initial choice of God wrought before time, that person would be an absolute ingrate, ungrateful person in other words, indeed if he failed to give all the glory of this salvation solely to the unexplainable love of God. Why did God love me? Why did he make this known to me? Why not to someone else in the same family? All kinds of questions we can raise. But in the end, we're looking to the grace of God who did this for his own glory and his own purposes. First Peter chapter 2 has Peter joining Paul, and he writes this. I'm sure you've heard this before. When Peter said, you are, you believers are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who did what? Called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Since God set his love on you without regard for how great you were before he called you, and in spite of your undeserving nature, there is nothing you can do that will brush away his hand of grace and mercy that is working to draw you into his eternal blessing 
that's been talked about here in Ephesians 1. To such weak, unworthy persons as you and I, God says, I loved you before this world began, so don't doubt me now. Our Father, thank you for wonderful things that are like mountaintops and deep valleys that we look into and we exclaim, how fantastic. I don't know if I can accept that. It's so above me. It's so high. It's so beautiful. It's so mysterious. But this is what puts your fingerprints on it and lets us know that the one called God Most High is the author of our salvation. Thank you, Father, for that which we cannot understand, for mountains that we cannot climb right now, but we look at them from a distance and say, Oh, how great is our God. How great is our Savior. We praise you together for Jesus' sake. Amen.